Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. We've got Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 24th podcast. On this episode, we talk about attack vectors in crypto. We look at a 51% attack on Vertcoin and how ASIC resistance is turning out to be a massive security bug, not a feature. We also look at Ethereum Classic and a social engineering attack on the ETC dev team. Finally, we discuss the event stream attack, which robbed crypto wallets that use the NPM library and what that means for open source governance. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking, and I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Uh, not much. So uh, first topic that I thought we could talk about is this whole idea of ASIC resistance. And so recently, there's been a uh, 51% attack on Vertcoin, and we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, I think it's a pretty interesting discussion to have, especially given where things stood like a year ago on whether, you know, what does ASIC resistance mean? And is it a massive security bug? And is it not a feature? That's basically the kind of stuff that we'll get into. So Vercoin is a pretty interesting coin. It's one of these coins that gained a lot of attention last year during the bull run. Their claim to fame is the idea that they're ASIC resistant. So background here, for those who aren't super familiar, ASIC resistance is the product slash backlash of the case that... Bitcoin mining is dominated by ASICs and miners who have those ASICs. So ASICs here are application-specific integrated circuits. And the key thing here that you just have to know is that they're application-specific. So they're built specifically for a particular purpose. In the case of Bitcoin, as Bitcoin was original mineable on a laptop, and then it required better hardware, someone had written their own circuitry to mine it, which gave them an edge over others. So then companies like Bitmain came along with a specialized Bitcoin mining hardware, and which was basically a miner box that runs its own ASIC. Yeah, and the way I like to think about it is like this ASICs or any sort of specialized hardware, it brings down the cost per unit of hashing power. So, you know, your $1 will get you a lot more hashing power with an ASIC than with a GPU than with a CPU for a given algorithm. But on the flip side, it increases the minimum capital outlay to like get started. So where, you know, you could mine on just your laptop with something that has CPU mining or with a couple hundred dollar GPU, now you have to go spend maybe thousands of dollars to get the smallest viable piece of hardware that can mine. And taken to an extreme, you can end up in a situation where if you don't invest millions of dollars, you end up not being able to mine profitably. Right. So the worry there was basically when Bitcoin had gone from laptop mineable to a little bit of better hardware to much better hardware, the worry was that only people with enough capital, as you pointed to, were the ones who were able to mine Bitcoin. 
because they would be the only ones who could actually afford these ASIC miners. And then they'd also need access to cheap electricity, of course. So there was this movement, which was basically among crypto participants where they wanted some kind of people's coin. And that was the kind of coin that could be mineable on any kind of simple hardware. And I think the mindset here is basically that, you know, anyone should be able to generate some of their own people's coin based on what hardware they have. They shouldn't be missing out because of ASIC miners. So Vercoin was an attempt at one of these people's coins, and it was an ASIC-resistant GPU mineable coin based off of the Bitcoin codebase. And I'm pretty sure it was a fork of Bitcoin. It had a bit of fanfare around it because of its connection to MIT as one of the core devs went there and they have some kind of relationship with MIT's digital currency initiative. Okay. And I'd say last year, there were basically like two major camps of thought around this. One was that a people's coin was necessary for decentralization, that ASIC miners were dangerous because they caused centralization. Uh, the idea is here is if we get more people who are able to mine profitably and not using specialized hardware, the more decentralized a network will be. The second camp of thought was basically that ASIC miners are absolutely necessary to prevent the security risks that would arise from something like a people's coin. So can you expand on on point number two? Because this is one that I've never... So what is the security risk to having a relatively well-distributed group of miners or relatively evenly distributed? So we'll get into that in, in a second. And okay. I'll give you one type of attack that ended up happening, but uh, or is happening like right now, basically. So in terms of how things stand now, so Vertcoin is having a 51% attack against it. So what's a 51% attack? Basically, uh, cryptocurrencies have different kind of attack vectors that are based on their fundamental makeup. In the case of mineable currencies, you know, they face the possibility of a 51% attack where a group of miners can basically take control of the network hashing power and start uh, effectively faking transactions. There's a great website actually, uh, www.crypto51.app, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But what it has is basically it lists all the estimated costs of attacking different mineable crypto networks. And they list the coin, they have the market cap, and then they kind of look at key four variables. So the algorithm that a coin uses for mining. So this is going to differ from coin to coin for different kinds of reasons. You know, Bitcoins is SHA-256. Vertcoins is something called Lyra or Lyra. I'm not sure, Lyra 2REV2. And they also look at the hash rate and the one hour cost to attack the network. So that's a really interesting metric. And they look at the percentage that is nice hashable. And we'll get into nice hash in a second, but uh, this is how the website actually calculates the cost to attack. So this is from their website. Using the prices nice hash lists for different algorithms, we're able to calculate how much it would cost to rent enough hashing power to match the current network hashing power for an hour. NiceHash does not have enough hashing power for most larger coins, so we also calculated what percentage of the needed hashing power is available from NiceHash. Note that the attack does not include block rewards that the miner will receive for mining. In some cases, this can be quite significant and reduce the attack cost by up to 80%. Great. Yeah. (laughs) So NiceHash is this... uh, is a Slovenian-based mining marketplace, and it matches up buyers and sellers of mining capacity. 
So if you wanted to mine Vertcoin a nice hash, you'd send nice hash some BTC, buy some Lyra mining capacity, match up the pool you want to mine and monitor your order. This is how they describe themselves on their website in case that wasn't uh, clear. Uh, so NiceHash is the world's largest crypto mining marketplace. It's based on the concept of sharing economy by connecting sellers and buyers of computing power from all over the world. Sellers are provided with the easiest way of earning money through the NiceHash miner that auto sells the user's computing power for the highest possible profit on the marketplace. There's a dashboard that provides sellers with additional value and insights for better day-to-day mining. And they go on to say, basically, they have uh, access to hashing power across all major algorithms. So, you know, buyers can buy hashing power to mine any coin, whether they're smaller coins or more established coins. And it's got a pay-as-you-go model. So it's flexible on in terms of how much you can, how much you want to buy based on what you want to buy directly in BTC. There's no long-term contracts or whatever. So what that effectively does is it allows you to mine coins without outright owning hardware. And it also lets you arbitrage at times. So when there are spreads between what you're paying for and what you could sell your newly minted coins for. So I know a few people who have actually done this pretty regularly. A good friend of mine, especially during quiet periods in the market, where in the morning you could look at uh, which coins would have the spread between mining on nice hash and selling directly on exchanges. So they buy up capacity for the day and just keep dumping their coins on an exchange and just keep the difference. Uh, so hmm. during a quiet period, you can actually you know, generate some some income like that. The moment the market starts moving a bit, that's when your arbitrage is bas- can fall apart pretty quickly, especially if, if your coin starts falling apart. So the risk, of course, here is you can never mine a ton to sell on the market because you're going to be pushing your own price down and that's going to kill your, kill your spread. Right. So anyways, the super clear issue here is though, you know, if you have the capital... You just can buy up a ton of mining capacity outright on a coin and cause all kinds of problems for that coin. So uh, back to the 51% attack on Vertcoin. But So this is how Crypto51 describes a 51% attack. In proof-of-work cryptocurrencies, nodes typically are set up to recognize the blockchain with the most blocks and therefore the most hashing power as the correct version of history. Miners with more than 50% of network hashing power can take advantage of this by sending funds to one address on the main chain while sending the same funds to another address on a forked copy of the blockchain they are silently mining with more hashing power than the main chain. Since other nodes know only about the main chain, they will see the first transaction as valid and the exchanges, etc., will accept the transaction as valid. This malicious node can later release these silently mined blocks and other nodes will accept this as the new correct chain since it's longer. This will cause the original transaction to effectively disappear and nodes will recognize the funds as being sent to the address from the new chain instead. This is known as a double spend attack. Most bigger cryptocurrencies have sufficient mining capacity behind them, making it extremely expensive to acquire the necessary hardware to pull off an attack like this. Smaller cryptos have less hashing power securing the network, making it possible to simply rent hashing power from miners on a service like NiceHash for a few hours, which can reduce the capital costs of an attack. Yeah, and what's interesting to me here is it's really to do with how big or small your cryptocurrency is against the largest one with the same algorithm. So if you have a SHA-256-based cryptocurrency, 
all like globally, the available amount of hashing power is all of the hashing power that's you know essentially behind Bitcoin and other SHA-256 currencies. So only a small percent of it would need to be diverted to attack you. Whereas if you have like some weird algorithm that no one else is using that requires you know some specialized hardware, then it's probably a lot harder to be attacked. Yeah. So the current cost of attacking Vertcoin is about $145 an hour, which is really That's not nothing. A, yeah, it's nothing. It really isn't. <laughs> I mean, we could do a podcast where we just attack it for an hour and talk about the whole thing if we wanted. <laughs> um, so according to Mark Nesbitt of Coinbase, there's probably a viable Twitch stream here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do 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 a live Twitch uh, podcast of, of, of a Bitcoin fifty one percent attack. So according to Mark Nesbitt of of Coinbase, they've observed what they call deep reorganizations of the Vertcoin blockchain. So <laughs> this is really interesting, and it gets into like forensics and analytics of a blockchain. And it's always really interesting stuff. So this is what they said. We observed repeated deep reorganizations of the Vertcoin blockchain with the largest reorg having a depth of 307 blocks and a length of 310 blocks. Total value of the double spends was over $100,000. And they go through each of the four incidents that they found. So the first had eight reorgs with three of which was 71,000 Vertcoin. The second had eight reorgs all of which included double spends totaling about 50,000 Vertcoin. And just for context, Vertcoin is, you know, 33 cents, around 30 cents right now, I think. The third incident had two reorgs without any double spends. And now here's the fourth one. This is from them. There were four reorgs in this incident, all of which included double spend transactions. These were the deepest reorgs observed that also included double spends, suggesting perhaps that the victim of the double spends had raised confirmation requirements, forcing the attacker to expend more hash power for each attack. And we've seen stuff like this before where, like if you want to do a transaction these days with a, a lot of these exchanges, you know, they've raised their confirmation requirements. You know, so I'm not sure what it is for Bitcoin, but I, I've seen other confirmation requirements of like 50, um, 60, you know. So, oh, wow. yeah, so it's possible that what they're trying to do. I mean, th this ends up hurting their customers. Like if you want to send a coin to your exchange very quickly to, to put a trade on, you don't want to wait for a really long time just to get your transactions through. But exchanges, this is an attempt at probably trying to, well, I don't know if an exchange is doing this here, but it is something an exchange would do. Right. So if you know a 51% attack in Vertcoin is going on right now, I guess if you're an exchange, you're just going to raise the confirmation requirements maybe. Or, or freeze or freeze trading. Yeah, freeze trading <laughs> on Vertcoin. Yeah, you got to do something. So these 51% attacks are super interesting. And, you know, they've been going on not just against Ver Vertcoin, but, you know, other currencies like Verge and Monacoin. Verge is one of these privacy coins that ended up becoming a top privacy coin last year during the bull run, but it just had a complete disaster of a code base. Mono was this kind of funny, arcane, Japanese-focused crypto coin. Uh, anyway, they've been attacked as well, and it's opened up a whole discussion around proof of work. And, you know, just because you have a proof of work algorithm and are a fork of Bitcoin, that doesn't provide automatic security. And I think Nesbit goes on to point out a few other things. So he says basically the ease of executing these attacks casts significant doubt on the viability of these assets to provide a stable system of ownership. 
unless the dominant application of the underlying hardware used to mine a cryptocurrency is actually to mine the cryptocurrency, there will always be a significant risk of a 51% double spending attack. Let me repeat that. The only way an asset can materially reduce the risk from 51% attacks is to be the dominant application of the hardware used to mine the asset. So point here, I guess, is that, you know, ASIC resistance is not looking good as a feature and it has massive security flaws, especially with prices where they are in the gutter, the cost to execute these attacks is really low. So, you know, some coins as a result are doing things like what Sciacoin doing, which is introducing their own mining hardware. And other coins are just doing a full shift to proof of stake like Nix. So these aren't guaranteed to fix anything. You know, proof of stake has its own issues to contend with and whatnot. But what's interesting is that, you know, we're having this like pretty large data set now of coins, their algorithms, you know, which ones are successful against certain types of attacks and so forth. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting seeing this stuff happen. So yeah, this crypto downturn has been interesting because a lot of these like theoretical attack vectors and vulnerabilities are actually playing out. So we get to see how a lot of these currencies perform in the wild under completely different market conditions than we had a year ago. Yeah. And then uh, on that note, I want to transition into our second topic, which is the uh, shutdown of the ETC dev organization. So last week we talked about the crypto downturn and this week we see another organization shut down due to market conditions and also some alleged hostile behavior, which we'll get into. I think there's a lot of lessons in this story about open source culture and how some of it is incompatible with uh, cryptocurrency projects just because there's so much money at stake. So, So ETC dev here was, this is Ethereum classic? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So just to give you a little bit of background, so back in 2016, the DAO had raised $168 million and approximately 50 million of which was stolen via an attack. So as a result, people basically decided to do a hard fork to reverse that theft. And the new branch with the, the theft reverted is what's now known as Ethereum. And then ETC, which is Ethereum Classic, was the result of support for the old branch by those that believe in like blockchain immutability, that you can't just hard fork to get rid of transactions. Yep. So ETC Dev, or Ethereum Classic Dev, was an organization that's responsible for a lot of the essential uh, Ethereum Classic projects. So most notably, uh, Classic uh, Geth. So for regular Ethereum, you have Geth, which is like the Go library for mining and interacting with the blockchain. So this is the Ethereum Classic version. There was an uh, Emerald SDK for dApp development, an Emerald uh, wallet, and then a Sputnik VM. So that's a Ethereum-compatible virtual machine. So they really were building a lot of the core projects for Ethereum Classic. So they're run by their founder and CTO, Igor Artemonov. And uh, another thing that's notable with Ethereum Classic is they were one of the few currencies that were listed by Coinbase. And even now their market cap is, you know, hovers around the four or $500 million mark. So for one of the main organizations that was writing the wallet and Geth uh, to claim insolvency is a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, you know, what happened? So December 3rd, which for us recording is actually just yesterday, uh, he put out this statement on Twitter. Unfortunately, ECC Dev cannot continue to work in the current situation and has to announce shutdown of our current activities. 
and then attached is a screenshot um, with a with a <laughs> statement, and I'll read that statement. ETC Dev announcement to the Ethereum Classic community. It is with great regret that I communicate the shutdown of ETC Dev current activities related to Ethereum Classic effective immediately. As is publicly known, we have struggled with funding our operations in the last few weeks. This was partially due to the market crash combined with a cash crunch in the company. We appeal to investors in the ecosystem as well as external to it. We also did the community fund, but in none of these cases were we successful in securing short-term financing. Thanks to our developers and other people who have helped me and ETC Dev build our great products and vision the last two and a half years. Igor Artemonov, founder and CTO, ETC Dev. So seems like a pretty straightforward case. You know, we've seen price collapse, we've seen things shutting down as a result. But what's interesting in this scenario is a few days earlier on November 30th, Igor had written a medium post detailing what was essentially a hostile takeover of the team and code base by ETC Labs and Digital Finance Group. So how, how did that work? Yeah, so just to give you a background, DFG is a crypto investment firm that has a bunch of projects. They have a hedge fund, a venture fund, payment platforms. And then ETC Labs is an incubator for projects on the ETC blockchain. And the notable link here is that the leadership of both groups has uh, James Wo and uh, Terry Culver, who's one of the main players in the story. So uh, in this Medium post from November 30th, I'm just going to read some of the snippets from Igor because they're pretty, they're pretty interesting. Okay. So from the Medium post, I lost access to funds I was counting on for ETC Dev's development. These were supposed to cover the next year's burn rate. This happened right before the ETC Labs launch. So they, ETC Labs and DFG, were the first people I contacted to ask for short-term help until I could figure out what to do later. They promised they would help and I, that I shouldn't bother anyone else about investment, financing, or donations to ETC Dev. So there's a couple of interesting items in here. So, you know, obviously he's running out of money and goes out fundraising, fair enough. It appears that it's implied that this was reliant on one major source with the I lost access so to funds I was counting th- this on. Thing, I lost access to the funds I was counting on. Yeah, so I did, I did a little bit of uh, additional reading, and because the way it was worded is, I thought he had funds that got hacked or stolen. Yeah, but the implication is essentially that some funds were promised and that that fell through. Ah, uh, okay, uh-huh. okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. The wording was a little curious, but my takeaway is that essentially there was you know some some funds promised from some party that fell through. Right. Yeah, because uh, the way when, it was worded, it sounded like there was a wallet or something he did. Right, he lost right. access to. <laughs> no, the money was never there. And uh, so, what's interesting too is just with the, all the rest of the stuff that ends up happening. What is interesting is that this funding disappeared right before ETC Labs launched. Anyway, so this funding source pulls out, and then Igor gets a verbal promise from ETC Labs that they'll help him out. And is content to rely on that because I guess this don't look for any other investments, financing, or donations didn't raise any red flags. If you've already found yourself in a situation where you've run out of money, you've had investors drop out, you would think that you'd want to really not repeat that mistake and try and diversify your fundraising sources. But anyway, going back to Igor and the funding search, I'm going to quote him again. For the following two weeks, we continued discussing a possible grant from ETC Labs slash DFG, and everything was discussed through voice calls with Terry Culver, uh, Terry being one of the 
I think CEO chairman types on each of these orgs. Yep. During these discussions, he reminded me that DFG was doing a lot for ETC dev, but that they were not getting the respect they expected. He insisted to add a representative from DFG <laughs> to the ETC community organization on GitHub. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, this wasn't so simple, of course, and I explained why to him, but he was returning to that same issue in every call. So it sounds like, you know, this grant money is supposed to come through, but it is contingent on ETC Labs getting a seat on the GitHub community org. Okay, I guess this is this is like a board seat nowadays. Yeah, I guess this is the equivalent of a board seat, or it's, <laughs> it's essentially some, you know, managerial. Yeah, I guess the closest proxy would be a board seat. He was basically like, "I want someone that has merge access on their team." Basically, yeah. Well, if it had only been merge access, we might have been okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> following up on that, so there's this uh, person from the DFG side. Crycoder is their GitHub handle. They're given admin access to the organization. And then uh, Igor claims that this is not contingent on funding, but it sounds like it effectively is. And then this is where it starts to get interesting. So uh, Igor also makes the claim that one of the people in his organization, Darcy Reno, is a Trojan horse. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to quote this again. Darcy Reno was apparently a Trojan horse in ETC dev. Not only did he fail to do project management in general, but all he did was to gather internal information, our contacts, roadmap, and try to get control of everything else. He had his own agenda and a side communication with ETC Labs. So now we have this supposed Trojan horse in the ETC dev organization. We have CryoCoder with admin access. And ETC dev has secured some short-term funding. Yep. So now we get to the, to the takeover. So to quote, uh, initially we were getting some progress with grant agreement and DFG even made a small donation to cover existing expenses. But then Darcy had an unplanned meeting with Terry Culver, James Wo, and Eric Yang in Hong Kong. After that moment, all discussions drastically changed and all communications paused. That means we had lost critical time to resolve our issues. The only call I had after that with Terry Culver was short and basically consisted of one question. He asked... If they invested in ETC dev, will there be a different approach to changes to the ETC core tech if I would do what they say or not? I said no. <laughs> we didn't have any communication with DFG anymore after that. They didn't even reply to my emails. And a few days, Darcy Reno said that he was changing jobs to work for ETC Labs. It seems that they agreed that Darcy would bring ETC dev under ETC Labs. He had all our short and long-term plans, all contacts, and ETC Labs will get much more control over the protocol with him. Without my knowledge, all the ETC dev engineers received a call and offer from ETC Labs with much better terms, what was supposed to be the same job. Wow. Yeah. So team is being pushed, uh, roadmap has been lifted, and this arguably sort of bad faith from ETC Labs team, but you could like say still fair game to you know offer someone a better job and whatnot. But where it really gets interesting is what happens next with uh, this uh, CryCoder guy who we mentioned was the person that had been given GitHub admin access. Yep. So, quoting, that person removed all the other owners in the organization, becoming the single owner of the ETC community. Also, the same user copied all the existing ETC dev projects into his own repo. That takes a lot of time as well. It's not forking, but copying, so it cannot be made by a mistake. Darcy Reno just deleted ECT Dev Medium, 
As I mentioned, he was obsessed with admin rights and still has such rights on many of ETC dev properties. Wow. So yeah, so the, you know, the in short, like a third party was given full admin rights to most of their properties, mm-hmm. proceeded to abuse those admin rights, shut everyone else out, kill off the medium page, and just essentially absorb ETC dev into their own organization. So what's what do you think their goal is here basically to be the main the main developer team for ETC now? I would imagine so because if you look at they're heavily invested in the ecosystem. You know, they have this incubator, they have a hedge fund, they have a venture fund, they have payment systems, exchanges. Like they, you know, it's it's still a, about a half a billion dollar market cap community or block, mm-hmm. you know, currency. And I think that they didn't like that the actual direction that the you know the wallet was taking and the the core projects were taking. They didn't have it. They're so invested in the in this ecosystem and they don't have control over it. This was just a way to uh, gain control of that ecosystem. Yep. So it's, you know, there's a clear financial incentive here. You know, I don't know any of the people in these discussions, so just keep that in mind. I just wonder if like if this was kind of their long-term play, like they knew how much money the ETC dev team had and how long it would be before they run out. And like in the case that they run out, like they would end up doing this. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, again, this is now me just speculating, but going back to that early point we had made about before, right right before ETC Labs launched coincided with when the uh, funding disappeared, like I think the reality sits somewhere on the spectrum with this was a relatively coordinated effort to they came in with good intentions and then saw that, hey, we can actually just take this thing over because it's going to run out of money. Mm-hmm. So better it like lives with us than dies on its own. Right. So who's to say? But it's definitely an interesting story. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if there's like a, a public response to all of this because these are some pretty big claims. Yeah, I think there will be a, a response. We've seen a tweet from uh, Ethereum Classic basically saying that ETC Dev isn't Ethereum Classic. There's a number of other players involved that contribute to the viability and everything is still good, which of course, you know, they have to. And there's also been a lot of conversation around, uh, there's a theory going that Barry Silbert was funding ETC Dev because he has a financial interest in the you know viability of ETC as well. And then Igor basically came out and said, like, hey, that's not the case. We've run out of money. But we would happily take right. money from Barry Silbert at this point. Right. Yep. But more broadly, I think this raises questions about governance of these open source projects that have very significant financial incentives. Or just governance and open source in general. There, There is a lot of mentality out there amongst developers about Everyone should be able to contribute. You know, on one extreme, you have projects where anyone that asks for it can be given merge access. And obviously, as we've seen, just handing over control is not is something that needs a bit of a uh, vetting, especially when you have such financial incentives involved. And even when they're not involved, or even when it doesn't appear that there are financial incentives, there may be. So we saw an event uh, last week with uh, EventStream. Yeah. So with EventStream, basically, in you know server-side JavaScript, uh, Node.js, there's a tendency to use lots and lots of small libraries as dependencies, and most of the library you use will be made up of lots of dependencies of their own. So one of these was called EventStream, and 
the author of EventStream was basically asked by someone else if they could take over the project, which is pretty common. You'll often have authors, you know, uh, write and support a library and then they're no longer interested in it. But if it's being heavily used, someone else who has a vested interest in maintaining it will take it over. So that's yep. pretty common. But what happened here with EventStream is whoever took it over essentially put a backdoor in that was designed to steal coins out of, uh, I believe, uh, BitPay wallets. Yep. And so it was this very roundabout attack on BitPay by changing the source code of just some relatively generic JavaScript library. And BitPay's library was open source as well, right? Like this is a, this is a pretty smart attack. Yeah. They had to go through BitPay's source. Yeah. And then figure out which library they might be able to do this attack with. Yeah, exactly. And the nature of dependency management, particularly in the node world, is that you do have this very like large tree of very like often very small dependencies. And so the tradition or the common practice is that people are not actually aware of all the dependencies they're importing. Yep. Like that's the reality of the situation. So it definitely creates an opportunity for bad actors to slip something in there, which they did. Yep. But yeah, the broader question is just around, you know. And just to just to put some of this into perspective, you know, for, there's a lot of people who listen to this that aren't developers necessarily, but so a lot of uh, JavaScript projects will have a something called a lock file. And the lock file is basically a list of all the dependencies that you're going to use on a particular version. So even a small project, like a very small project, you just like roll up, say, a little project with uh, five libraries, you can look at that lock file and all the dependencies that it's pulled in. It can be even a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Or a thousand. Yeah. A yeah, hundred or a thousand very easily. So just imagine if you have a big project, um, you're using a library you're trusting that particular library and inherently you're trusting that library's dependencies too. So when de- when we use the word dependency, we just mean a library that depends on another set of libraries. Yeah. And and this creates a situation that's very, uh, like if you're looking at it objectively, if you're building something like a wallet or anything that's handling money, you should really have an idea of every bit of code and audit every dependency that's coming in. If you were to look at this objectively, but because of the practical difficulties of doing so, it's really not like it's it's not the common practice. And you see, you know, attackers taking advantage of that discrepancy. So in this case, so let's call it like version, uh, it was like 3.3.6 and 3.3.4 or something like that. I don't remember the exact version numbers, but the later version was the one that was that had the issue, right? Right. So this new person took over control of the library. They, they asked the author, you know, can I become the maintainer of this? Um, <laughs> Which is hilarious, but okay. Yeah. So then they did, they got access. What's interesting is I believe they were able to leave the, like the author name and stuff alone. So if you're like pulling this down, you might not even know that all this change has happened. That's incredible. And so basically, yeah, they published a new version with this backdoor in it. And then, you know, as people go through and do their like regular upgrade or pulling down dependencies, this backdoored code uh, ended up in their projects, including uh, with BitPay, who was their intended target. Yep. Yeah, so I, th- I think we'll, you know, we need to see some standards of like governance coming to these open source projects now that the financial incentives have really gone up significantly in the cryptocurrency world. And I think with like BitPay in particular, people are even extra upset at them 
it was all the history around BitPay. Basically, like they were involved in the hard fork of Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash last year. They were giving more support to Bitcoin Cash and that sort of thing. Yeah. So they're a controversial uh, the, figure. Yeah, they're already a controversial figure. And then on top of that, like their hygiene around the libraries they're uses now, you know, concerning there certainly is a risk, right? Not to put blame on them specifically, but there's risk if they're using libraries like these. So it's tough. There's no easy answer to this. I think like a lot of people were blaming, was his name Dominic Tarr? I think he was the yeah. original owner of Event Streams. So or a lot of yeah. people were like blaming him. And then people came to his defense and they were like, look, it's not his fault. It's like a broader issue. I think we saw, you know, some views like our friend Ben DeFrancesco of Scopelift. He had tweeted out something. I think he tweeted out, uh, I'll read it right here. So delicious irony, while half the crypto world still isn't worried about incentivizing developers because open source, quote unquote, scammers are using the piss poor state of OSS funding as an attack vector in elaborate schemes to steal Bitcoin from a web wallet. So his view is basically like, yeah, it's a great view. It's like, why should Dominic be incentivized to even do anything additional with this project if he actually hasn't like used it, right? Yeah, if you have a scenario where the only people with financial incentives are the attackers, then guess what? They're going to end up winning out because they're going to put more effort in than anyone else. So yeah, that's absolutely true. There are a few other views too. Uh, Kate Sills, she said, it's strange to me that People think the lesson from the event stream attack is about NPM package maintenance. It seems like the real problem is that we have crypto wallets that aren't using the principle of least authority. Yeah. That was pretty this, good. This is going back to that to a point about, you know, people saying that you should know every dependency you pull into your project, like you're responsible for. Yep. And I like if you're building a wallet or something that that is handling people's money. You really, really need to be on top of where, like, what the code is that's coming in and what you're doing with it. Right. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q U A N T L A Y E R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V I K R A M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks.